I wrote to Santa to ask for more podcasts and for my dad to come back, but he didn't answer. So now I am trying you guys instead. I hope you get this. What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. That's right, we're back, and more importantly, I'm back. This isn't going to be one of those weird episodes without me like last time. I'm here. Uh, as you can tell, Martin is also here. You know, I, I uh, thought about just doing a solo episode for Revenge, but it didn't seem right. You know, it's not really a Touchline Theory without the two of us. How are you doing, Martin? I'm doing all right, Will. Uh yeah, life is full of surprises. We took another hiatus. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess that probably is hardly surprising, but we are back, like you said. Uh, I think we've been talking about hopping back on the mics for a little while now, and we've got a, uh, a nice, tidy little episode for today. I think we've got some cool things lined up, perhaps for the coming weeks, coming months, um, as obviously school finishes up for me and we get closer to summer where you know it'll be a little less gray out and more uh you know green perhaps green um, sure um so i'm yeah i think it'll be good i think we've got some cool things to discuss uh i've been told that you have some things to share regarding uh our our little gap in episodes so why don't we start with that we'll talk a little bit about the episode and then we'll dive straight in yeah, it's uh, so it's been a long time. I'm trying to think when the last one even would have been. It's probably October, November, something in that something range. like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, it's been a long time. the The thing that really kicked it off was uh, all this Joe Rogan business on Spotify. You know, we didn't really want to be sharing a platform with a guy like that, so we sent a letter to Spotify. We said, "Listen, Spotify, it's either Joe or it's us," and they picked Joe. And uh, so we've we had to, you know, stop producing new episodes for them. And, you know, we finally sorted that out now. But uh, the moment that really brought us back, um, at, at least for me and Martin, maybe this had the same kind of effect on you, too. But uh, of course, you know, I, I feel like doing this podcast is often kind of like an insular experience for us. Like, I, I don't feel like we're really reaching any other people. It, it still feels at its core. Like it's just you and me, you know, talking on the video call, right? Martin, like we do all the time outside of this, this, you know, it, it's just an extension of that. And I forget sometimes, you know, there's people out there listening and uh, I got a letter actually from, from a young fan from uh, Brisbane, Australia. And it just, uh, it really put things in perspective, I guess, and showed that, you know, maybe even though I think these episodes are kind of silly sometimes, uh, you know, they, they are bringing some value. So um, let's hear it. If you don't mind. Yeah. Mar Martin has read this already. I sent it over to him as soon as I got it. Um, and if you guys do want to <laughs> keep on sending us mail, that would be fantastic. But anyway, mail is actually like our preferred form of getting yeah. in touch with listeners, actually handwritten uh, stamped mail. So. We're, we're old fashioned. What can we say? Two we're old just... fashioned guys. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to read the letter now. Just uh, go for it. You know, sit, sit back and imagine, imagine, you know, put yourself in my shoes that this is about something that, you know, you created. Dear Will and Marcus, my name is Jonathan and I am 12 years old. 
I love to play soccer. My favorite team is Barcelona, and my favorite player is Dembele. It was so cool when you guys talked about him. Sometimes I don't understand your podcast sometimes, but I still like to listen to it before I go to bed every night. When you stopped making new episodes, I was really sad, and other things started to get worse, too. I can't score a goal at school anymore, and also my dad is on a long trip, and my mom's friend Dave, who is mean, is here instead. I wrote to Santa to ask for more podcasts and for my dad to come back, but he didn't answer, so now I am trying you guys instead. I hope you get this. Love, Jonathan. Uh, uh, thank, <laughs> uh, th thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank it's, you, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, this one's for you, buddy. I hope this I one's hope, for you, Jonathan. I hope Dave is gone. Um, he he did he did. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm assuming that Marcus is is meant to be you. I, it's Martin. probably me. I am. Um, know, and you very know, secondary when it comes to this pairing. I I can't hold that misspelling against him because it's clear from the rest of his letter he is a true you know maybe the biggest fan of the show he might be our top fan and also i, I forgive jonathan my name's been misspelled by plenty of people this is a new unique format but i i won't hold the grudge against him um i think yeah if, if anybody else has any uh, heartfelt messages that they'd like to share with us then feel free to send them our way obviously for us it gives him more profound meaning to what we do here uh sitting in our respective rooms across the country yeah. talking about uh soccer questions and i think that gets us back to kind of where we're headed with today's episode um i i wanted to kind of remind those who have missed us or perhaps are here for the first time that this is touchline theory is a question podcast not a question and answer podcast and i think that's important to it's important to draw the line there because uh, there's a lot of folks out there who I think are are kind of posturing themselves as as Q and A, right? And and yeah. saying that, you know, here's this thing that we're trying to understand, and here is the solution. And I think that's a little arrogant, uh, in all honesty. I think I saw a tweet a couple days ago, actually, that was shared by another podcast that I really like listening to. That was something along the lines of, you know, what I think is most impressive is how sure of everything everybody is. Or something like that. And I, I think that's very applicable. Uh, I think we have sought in previous episodes to never really try to proclaim that there is a specific given solution to anything that we are discussing, but simply to kind of have a what usually ends up being a stream of consciousness kind of unpacking of a given problem and trying to give you guys things to think about and uh, dissecting the issue, but not necessarily putting forth i don't want to tell you what to think we are trying to explore the topic together so yeah that will I, be I, consistent with today's i know episode. this i know this may be frustrating for people who aren't as big fans of a moral relativism as i can um that uh we pretty much finished every episode by saying that either either of these things can work sometimes in the right circumstances um but that's generally true. You know, soccer is a game and, you know, life speaking broadly, like every, anything can work in the right circumstances. It's just uh, about finding what those are, I guess. So what, what are we going to be talking about? Uh, what works today? That was, that was horrible. Jesus. That was appalling, but hopefully Jonathan will forgive you. Um, maybe he'll right, spell Jonathan. your name wrong the next time. But so today what we're going to be discussing is the idea of tempo. So I think yeah. this is a term that's used pretty ubiquitously at, the at any level uh, people will talk about the tempo of a match they'll talk about needing to play higher tempo or teams that are playing uh, 
insufficiently high tempo or players that slow the game down or speed it up. And, and we had chatted a little bit about how we wanted to kind of kick things off again. Um, and I think it's an interesting little corner of the soccer universe that perhaps is worth understanding a little bit more. Um, so I suppose we can start by, you know, between the two of us, I know I was born with the gift of, of rhythm and you unfortunately were not, but you do have maybe a little more musical acumen. So maybe you can uh, tell our, our listeners how tempo, where, where that term comes from, perhaps where it originates from and what it has to do with music so that we can kind of start to create an analog to its significance in football. You know, I, I will do that, Martin, since you asked. Um, as some of our more cultured listeners may know, tempo is a word in music. Uh, I believe it's Italian or Latin, one of those. You know, what's the difference? Um, but what it basically <laughs> governs good, is... Good start. <laughs> I mean, I don't think any Latin people are going to get offended by that one, at least. So. We don't want to marginalize any section um, of the fan base, yeah. but carry on. Um... <laughs> What was I saying? You were talking about tempo. Tempo. Tempo uh, pretty much governs how fast the music is played. You know, it's uh, given as uh, like beats per minute. So this will pretty much say, you know, I have these two notes. I have this note at the start of this measure. I have this note at the start of the second measure. And the tempo pretty much tells you how long there is going to be in between those. But like just knowing the tempo of a piece doesn't really tell you that much or anything about how it sounds. Because even two pieces with the same tempo, even two pieces with the same notes, you know, I have this note at the start of the first measure, I have this note at the next measure I'm going to get to. But what happens in between there is really what decides what the music sounds like. And, you know, within this tempo, you have the ability to go in all sorts of different directions and use different size notes and use notes in different places of the keyboard. And when you start thinking about it that way, it's pretty easy to draw a comparison to how this works in soccer. You know, it's the same idea. If, if we're trying to get the ball to, from one area of the pitch into another, then you could say, OK, we're going to do this at this tempo, and let's say 120. And that means that you know, the ball is going to get from one area of the field to the next in a certain amount of time. But the way we can do this is different. We can do this by just having one note in the middle one long ball, or we can throw in a bunch of smaller notes that uh, you know, kind of bridge the gap and would be kind of akin to a more intricate passing sequence you might see from like an Arsenal team or something like that. Is this, is this making sense to you, Martin? I think Someone... it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think one of the interesting things, right, that you bring up is this idea that you could attribute a number to this value. You could say that it's not necessarily just demarcating high tempo or low tempo, but you could try to quantify it. And the challenge is when you said 120, naturally, we, we didn't have any units there. And I think one of the things that is hotly I did, debated... I did give units, actually, but yeah. Oh, units of what? It's a beats per minute. So, oh yes, no, no, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, in the in the soccer universe, I totally agree uh, that yes, in music, course. it's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. more precisely defined. In yes. soccer, 120 begs the question: 120 what, right? And yeah. so, one of the things that that we are going to explore is perhaps what those units are, because it's pretty hotly contested. Maybe we can jump actually to that portion of the outline um, and go over some, you know, uh, potential ideas as to how we might define that, right? Because the things to distinguish here. Generally speaking, 
with tempo in soccer is it's hard to assess whether we care more about, say, the speed of the pass or the speed of the players. You could have a player that's running really fast with the ball, perhaps even players peripherally without the ball running that make it seem like the play is very intense and dynamic. But is that to be factored into the tempo that we're witnessing is if a ball is played super quickly, does that really matter? Or can you play firm passes and still have slow tempo? I think that's very possible, right? And so it suddenly becomes a, a task of trying to extract the things that actually matter, that actually factor into this idea that we, I think, intuitively can grasp, right? When you look at a team and you're like, okay, yeah, they play a high tempo style of football. Very generalist thing, but, but how can you know for sure? Um, yeah, and Perhaps just it's... just to get a baseline, like when when you think of a team that plays a high tempo style of football, like who's a team that immediately comes to mind, Martin? Oh, oh boy, I mean, I think you alluded to them. Or, well, I would say a team like Dortmund makes me feel like yeah. there's high tempo just because of their intensity and because of how. Perhaps not so much this year, but in years past, maybe even closer to like, you know, the quintessential Dortmund team from like 2013. Right. Yeah, I, would, I would completely agree. And Dortmund were actually the example I would have brought up if you had picked a different team. So I think it's it's uh... it's about performing. Well, we don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into this. So, OK, I guess that one of the other things to discuss, again, as like things to distinguish, right, is like what about time between successive successive actions? Maybe that's tempo. Maybe the idea is simply trying to figure out, you know, how. How, how much are players dawdling on the ball and the more dawdle the lower the tempo the the less dawdle the higher the tempo these are things that we're going to try to kind of piece together so okay um let's start with units because i think units are important to try to grasp and as we somewhat alluded to at the beginning of the podcast uh we're not going to arrive at a kind of conclusion it's this is simply going to be sharing a couple different angles that we could look at so typically when you when you try to assess units or you try to create some sort of like value function um trying to quantify some term like this you have let's say it'll be a you know it'll be a fractional a rational expression right you'll have some things that are directly proportional to the outcome and you'll have some that some things that are inversely proportional and i think maybe we can start by asking okay let's say hypothetically we are able to have the number of touches that occur in any given scenario right so let's say if you have a player that receives the ball and takes 10 touches before they make their next pass. It feels as though a player that does that with an extreme number like 10 would be producing a low tempo output. And so my question is, perhaps it's worth making some inverse relationship with temp between tempo and the number of touches. How do you feel about that as a starting point? I think it's an interesting starting point. I think you're right. You know, the the basic idea of tempo I have, you know, when I was a kid growing up and the coach would want us to play faster, you know, he'd say play two touch, but now play one touch. And I was uh, trying to get the play moving quicker, get the ball moving around. The problem I kind of run into with this is, you know, how exactly you're defining touches because touches when you're dribbling are very, very different things to when you were moving the ball around at speed. And you know, I guess my question would be like those 10 touches, you know, they, they do slow the play down, but should that be weighted equivalently? It's like 10 one touch passes when we're doing this, this metric. I feel like that's, there's a bit too much of a gap there for me. Yeah. I think the question here would be, how would you, how would you define this? I suppose my concept initially as a starting point would be to say individually. So you could, 
take this for every new player that receives the ball and you could see how many touches each individual player takes. And then you take that, all of that events over the course of a match, you average them or you somehow aggregate the, the product and you say, okay, on average, this team takes 3.5 touches between successive actions every single game. And then you'll see that there are some teams, let's say hypothetically, a Man City, where they're, they av- on average, they take, you know, 2.3 touches. And then you have a team like, I don't know, Augsburg, that is taking 4.4 touches. And it's an expression of maybe technical fluidity. It's an expression of uh, these, you know, possession fundamentals that are inculcated into the players that allow for them to, you know, move the ball quicker because they already know where their teammates are, things of that nature. I suppose that's kind of how I would frame it. But you're right that especially with dribbling, it poses an interesting question of like, how do you, how does dribbling factor into this? If you have a player that say receives the ball and is a very dynamic dribbler, say Vinicius, would you say (laughs) that Vinicius is a low tempo player? Because ultimately when he dribbles, the ball doesn't really move that much and he's taking a lot of touches and all that. Or would you say that he actually is a very, you know, dynamic player that positively contributes to tempo? I don't know. Yeah, and I, I completely see what you're bringing up here. And that's, you know, part of what I'm getting at with the, the, the number of touches being slightly flawed, too, is because a dribbling run could be, you know, taking 10 touches, like, in a circle trying to escape a defender who's on your back, or it right. could be 10 touches in a straight line down the wing, you know, like Vinicius or someone might be doing. And that, you know, is massive work in advancing the ball, while the other one is not at all. Right, and I think, I think the, that... One of the things that we have to factor in here is is distances, right? Yeah. It's distances. There's there's more than just touches. It it could be, so, I guess if we if we were to do that, if we were to include, kind of how far the ball is traveling, alongside how much contact it makes with the player. What about number of passes? I think that's a better starting point. I think uh, you know you can kind of get rid of some of that fuzziness with dribbling by including passes that gives a better sense of you know what pace the team is actually switching possession moving the ball around and one concept i kind of thought of uh to work dribbling into this is to just count dribbling kind of as like a slow pass so if a player dribbles from one location to the other it could be treated the same way when we're calculating this tempo stat whatever it ends up being as mm-hmm. if he had passed it to a different player in that same endpoint. And I think that's sure. uh, that's maybe a bit more honest to, to what dribbling is, because dribbling is kind of like a slow pass. You know, it's meant to progress the ball, but it's, you know, done at a lower speed, you know, at the trade-off of having a bit more control over the ball uh, when it's going from point A to point B. I like that. I think it probably... Uh, promotes a play style that is pretty harsh on dribbling, all things considered, because I think that that would punish teams, like that metric would punish teams that are more (laughs) predominantly focused on ball carrying to progress the ball. And I wonder, just generally, if that's a positive or a negative outcome, I think that a lot of teams have thought a lot about the value of different actions in possession. And I think that the way that you framed it is really interesting, this idea that Ultimately, and we'll talk about this again, actually, towards the very, very end of the show, that ultimately, we as humans are simply vehicles for the ball to uh, milestones along the ball's journey to go from point A to point B. And ideally, Mm -hmm. point A to point B is, you know, maybe a goal kick of ours to a goal on the other end, right? And so uh, fundamentally, if we're, 
you know, if we're dribbling, it's simply a different way of transporting that. And there's all these quotes from coaches talking about the fact that passing, this is a very trite notion, but like that there's nothing that moves faster on the field than the ball. And so yeah. passing the ball is the way that you can most quickly access little corners of the field with great intensity um, without needing to carry it and, and, and coddle it as you do. Right. So that being said, there's different territories on the field in which dribbling is perhaps more appreciated, right? One thing, one way in which dribbling is super high value and can actually in create moments of high tempo is say dribbling out of the back. There's an entire piece on this, on the touchline theory blog about the importance of provoking the opponent's press. Eric Garcia is the guy that's doing this for us. Every single time he gets the ball for Barcelona, he carries the ball out of the back. Somebody jumps and we, use that to find the free man that can produce yeah. moments of high tempo. And uh, Joel also... Matip does very similar things for Liverpool and exactly. it's great. And you know, there, there are times another big advantage of dribbling is it's not reliant on having another person already in the area you're trying to get to, you know, you have a full 360 range of motion when you're dribbling, yeah. you're not only locked to these set points where there are already players. You're not like swinging from a rope that needs some sort of pivot point, you have total freedom. I like that. And I think there's other differences vertically too, right? You, a dribble in the final third might be much higher tempo than say my center back that's moseying around with the ball, trying to figure out who to ping it to next. Um, and these are things that I think we'll talk about a little bit, but you had mentioned yeah. something to me earlier today about perhaps the possibility of splitting up this tempo metric in terms of our Cartesian uh axes on the field how would you kind of frame that because i think it's yeah. interesting and um just to kind of uh set some foundation for this one one of the things we were looking at uh, in preparation for this was a list of like which teams play at the highest tempo and this is from uh, it was an old study done from really i think 2011 uh 2010 2011 season and the teams you know that were listed as playing the highest tempo. This was a metric that was based mainly off the distance the ball traveled. Um, there were teams like Stoke City, who, if anyone remembers from that era, were very long ball centric, you know, hoof it forward and hope for the best team, uh, kind of like an analog to Burnley now, perhaps, for um, anyone who started watching more recently. But I, I see why these teams are listed as being high tempo because they're very direct, right? That's, that's the word I would maybe choose. But, you know, seeing teams like Manchester City at the bottom of the tempo chart just doesn't, like, quite sit right to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't think it would to you either. I think one of the things that, you know, I, you know, despite not maybe liking them the most, do really enjoy about City's play is the speed they move the ball around in the final third and, and how uh, fluid they look. And I think that's something they do better than most teams, not at a much lower level. So what this kind of got me thinking is that there's really two things we're talking about with tempo. There's, and the way I frame this is progression and possession. So progression is a, I would think of it as a more vertical thing. You know, this is something that the Stokes and the Burnleys of the world would excel at. This is, you know, how fast you're getting the ball from your own half where you don't want to be to up the field where, you know, you would like the goal to be. And, sure. you know, a team that looks for counterattacks is going to do fantastically. Well, when you're measuring this, because they are bringing the ball from the back to the front over and over and over again. Where in the meantime, 
a team like City, a team like Liverpool, when they play against sides that sat more defensively, there's not very much room for vertical progression because at a certain point, the game is pretty much only played in the attacking half. Right. And it's cycled around through there. But, you know, I don't think this means we say teams play at a slow tempo. I think we just have to look at, you know, a different axis for the tempo they're playing quickly. And so this kind of idea of possession, this more horizontal tempo, where you're not trying to advance the ball up the field, rather you're trying to move it around, you know, quickly interchange where players are, keep the ball moving, try to create or find some openings in the defense, you know, as, as more like a horizontal tempo concept. I think this, you know, would start to favor those teams that maybe have a lot of possession, so don't, you know, play as counterattacking, but are still moving the ball around very quickly and are still playing at a high pace. Yeah, I think something like distance solely, I think it punishes the teams that are trying to be much more methodical about how they move the ball around. And also it doesn't account for, yeah, what parts of the pitch are naturally used because a team that's under duress and constantly being bombarded in their own half and has one six foot seven Dan Byrne up the field that they can just punt the ball to yeah. is suddenly going to completely morph what this uh, table looks like. And then it results in something that doesn't really resonate. And I agree with you. I think that it's, I, I don't know necessarily whether say like Y velocity and X velocity are things that totally capture that because I think that, yeah. you know, now suddenly you might ask the question of, well, is a team that has this, greater kind of sophistication in possession are they moving it left to right really quickly back and forth or is it more just you know how uh how little resistance to their passing sequences does each player uh offer right there's there's all these questions about how to really capture it but i think you're going in a really interesting yeah. direction which is to say that we can't just solely attribute distance traveled i think you have to have something in there we talked about units very briefly some sort of term in the units that is not just say like distance over time i think there was a proposition that it ought to be distance over time and touches or distance over time and passes or some sort of way to also quantify other things maybe include kind of the different regions of the pitch and their respective levels of, of their you know how threatening they are if you have center backs that are just knocking the ball back and forth repeatedly at a, you know one touch does that mean you're playing high tempo or does it mean that you're just indecisive right like what is the conclusion that we should be getting from that it's a very difficult thing to to kind of quantify but um you're totally right that we have to ensure that we have the right amount of sophistication in the way that we look at this and i think there's been some really smart people that have kind of proposed and explored different ideas for the most part trying to you know put forth like hey how can we define pace of the game and kind of using a metric of, that they've kind of conjured up and then looking at a table and asking themselves, well, does this really make sense? And we're going to dive into that actually in a little bit. So yeah. I guess one thing that I want to talk about on the, on the note of velocities and distances and whatnot, um, one thing that I was trying to think about before the podcast, before we recorded, was whether players that simply look more energetic can give us the feeling of having a higher tempo, whether, you know, if you just took like the human positional data and found yeah. average, you know, acceleration vectors of each individual or each uh, velocity vectors, we'll talk about accelerations actually in a little bit. Um, you know, do you want players moving really fast or do you just want the ball moving quickly? I suppose that's another distinction that we will have to make because sometimes when you look and you see a lot of guys running really hard, you think, Hey, 
that, that looks energetic and intense, mm-hmm. but is that really what we care about? Or, you know, can you have the ball move really quickly and players be pretty static or can you have a lot of movement in players and the balls kind of stagnant? How would yeah, you I think frame that? That that is the goal to have, you know, the most possible ball movement with the least possible player movement. You know, that's uh that's that's the idealistic version of soccer, I guess, for me. You know, the the ball moves Why faster. Why is that? The ball moves faster. You know, we're trying to play well very quickly. This would be the fastest you could possibly play. And obviously this isn't this isn't doable. You know, players will always need to move. But, you know, if I could see my 11 players just set up and play 11 one-touch passes down the field, you know, that that sounds great to me. I would love yeah, to see I, that. Right? I think it's an optimization problem from the energy expenditure yeah. angle, too. I think yeah. it, it, it's a fatigue thing. And the, the important thing about fatigue here is this, this is an important thing to focus on when you're on the ball, you know, when you have more control over the tempo. Because, you know, I think trying to look at like uh, acceleration vectors or even something a bit broader, like just like total distance traveled in a game could be interesting. But I think that tells us maybe more about the defensive, uh, kind of the defensive system that a team might be playing with, because that's really, I think, where you have the opportunity to have more variation in energy by kind of playing a high press versus, you know, sitting and backing off a bit more. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, when we get into our second half of the show, we're going to kind of just pepper each other with all these different questions and ideas. I think we're definitely going to chat a little bit about defense and the role that it has in mm-hmm. dictating or reacting to the tempo that is, say, set by the protagonist who has the ball. I think there's a lot to be said for that, too. So before we do that, um, we have made this eternal promise to our listeners that we will get the episodes under an hour. And so I want to dive into really quickly um, this lit review that i want to do just chat a little bit about a couple of interesting things that we found um some very smart people like i mentioned before who have kind of dived into this question too in the past wrote or written rather a lot more formalized maybe uh mathematically grounded little blog posts and things of that nature um and i want to express too that you know, we are not the experts with with regards to these types of things. We are simply reading cursorily what these people have to say. And if, you know, if we mistake anything and we express their findings in a way that's somehow erroneous, feel free to let us know. And if it just so happens to be somebody who we are mentioning here who actually listens to the podcast and wants to explain the ideas for themselves, they're certainly welcome to come on the pod mm-hmm. and we can talk about it in greater detail. But a couple of quick things to, to showcase, because these people have basically posed the same questions as us, which is, um, yeah. What units are involved here is predominantly the question is like, how do you quantify this? And so um, I'll start with Lottie Branson or Lotta Branson. I, I don't know what the precise pronunciation of her name is, but she's a data scientist at Sci Sports um, and a PhD researcher at KU Leuven, which is a pretty preeminent institution for a lot of sports um, research papers that I think I've come across in the last year or so. And her proposition in a, in a recent study that she did, I think it's on pace and intensity in football, is that it really comes down to the time between successive individual actions. Um, I think this is a really interesting concept because the way that she kind of frames it, and this is, again, I welcome anybody to go ahead and read, read this in greater detail. But the, what I was able to extract from this is that the pace of the game is dictated by more of an individual level. We talk a little bit about how there's a distinction between maybe the collective and the individual. We'll talk more about that in the second half. She really wanted to understand like between, like if you quantify, if you measure the time between a player receiving the ball and releasing it, um, 
and then you are able to aggregate that information, you can, instead of getting a sense, maybe first for the team's tempo and for like a, say even a league's tempo, you can look at an individual and how they contribute to the dynamism of a game. And it is a way of expressing control and how you basically, an, one person keeps things moving versus slows things down. And I'm sure that if you, we were to think of say like players that exemplify this, we can probably think of some, you know, very quickly of players that we think of like, oh, this is like a, somebody that keeps the ball moving, maybe within our own individual coaching setups, maybe within the professional game, or, oh, this guy always takes so long on the ball. It's such a pain that they always slow down things. Like if you're on a counter, definitely don't let them have it. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was a very interesting potential idea. Now there are certain caveats and, and, and she brings up a handful of them in, in the blog post. Um, there's, you know, say for example, if you, if you were to take this, data and you would plot all the players say in the epl i think one thing that she did was observe that this does not include the distance of the pass and the problem with the distance of the pass is say if you're in a position like dan Byrne, who's playing high up the field or dominic calvert lewin who's like receiving a lot of these really long balls those are inherently harder think of the transfer of momentum there like it's much harder technically to control that ball and to be able to quickly release it yeah, and additionally, much more you often, know, in, in, in that kind of position, it, you, you're, you, you're taking it down. You might, you know. Like you, you, it, it's just you are more liable to have, say, a four-second time span between the re receiving the ball and releasing it versus, say, a guy who's the heart of your midfield that's playing a lot of tiny passes that are very, very easy to receive and knock off. And so there's positional differences, and there's this distance thing that just simply is not considered and that's an important thing to you know it's an important caveat yeah absolutely and what, what i was going to say too is that uh positionally another difference there is you know a, a player like calvert lewin who might be receiving a lot of long balls you know his teammates are going to be a lot further away from him on average Definitely. than someone who's playing in midfield so you know you you know regardless of how well you're able to control and the the tempo at which you're able to play it might be a situation where you just have to wait a few seconds for somebody else to get up and support yeah totally i agree so, um, I think the counterattacking scenario is just a generally interesting one because I know we both proposed Dortmund as a team that we think of that what plays high, have, yeah, like high tempo football, especially in the Klopp era. Um, it is certainly right. Our, our our field is rectangular; it's not square, and so in order to traverse the vertical distances, there's a lot more effort that needs to be exerted, yeah. and it makes it perhaps all the more impressive when a team is able to really fluidly connect the ball up the field as opposed to more uh you know tenderly caress it side to side probe laterally and so forth and so i think that it's another just interesting thing to consider right yeah i agree but you know i think this doesn't really account for is like you said you know there's there's different types of pressure in different areas in the field and this doesn't really account for that you know this uh totally this would love a couple center backs paying a few one-touch passes back and forth to each other that sort of thing mm -hmm. So um, another kind of metric I looked at is from Ted Knutson. 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 I'm so sorry, Ted. Um, he, was, he was the CEO of StatsBomb. It was pretty cool. And he, you know, has devised a metric that Dortmund uh, would do fantastically well on. And it's just based on the number of shots in a game. His idea is pretty much that a higher tempo game is one where the ball is moving quickly up and down the field, there's less defensive presence, and teams are able to get more shots off. What do you think about this? So I think 
Knudsen brings up some interesting points. Uh, he he really frames this in his blog post as just an exploration, right? Maybe not something that he's super, super attached to. But I think there is some merit to this. I think when you initially hear it, you're like, okay, hmm, that, I don't know if that's really the case. Like you could have a situation like Italy versus North Macedonia from yesterday in which one team completely, completely outshoots the other. And yet you don't really get the feeling that there's much intensity maybe at all, but rather a sense of impotence. We were talking about this earlier today, discussing the the European uh, World Cup qualifiers. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the challenge with that, right, is that in soccer, there's nothing that forces the opponent to have the ball. There's no mechanism like a shot clock in basketball that yeah. says like you have a limit to the amount of time you get and then it's the other person's or the other team's chance. You can realistically keep the ball in the opponent's half for the entire game, rack up a ton of shots and still be playing very lethargically. And that's really realistically what we saw with Italy, I think. Um, a lack yeah. a lack of creativity, a lack of dynamism. And so and this I- idea with, with the shots is that potentially there's a world in which if you see a lot of shots on both sides of the field, it means that the ball is going from one end of the field to the other because you have to obviously get it within shooting range. Yes. And in that case, you're experiencing what feels more like, let's say, a basketball game, which again, I keep saying this, we're going to talk about in the second half. Um, the problem is that there's no reinforcing mechanism that tells us that high volume of shots, especially if it's one-sided, means that the ball is actually getting down to that side of the field every time. And because we have a finite amount of time in the game, if you have a higher number of suggests that we're doing it with greater velocity. I think that that's kind of where it potentially falls apart. I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, like you mentioned, you know, if this is happening at both ends, I think this would be a great metric to kind of like determine the pace of individual games. But I agree, it has that failure that it doesn't really account for what both teams are doing. Because like using the Italy-Macedonia match as an example, I didn't watch this match uh, because I was busy. But from from what I've heard, it's it's not dissimilar to other matches I've seen before. You know, it's a classic story of a team having possession whole game you know taking a lot of shots but getting no good opportunities and then a counter-attacking team is able to do it i mean you know based on this metric number of shots uh you know italy would have played at a much much higher tempo in that game and i i don't know if that's really true you know if anything that's getting a few shots but you know actually going upfield very quickly would macedonia have been the higher tempo team in that well, game based on that's what, you what i saw? would say yeah and i think that even it's interesting right because defensively north macedonia looked very organized like very compact they shifted well they stymied a team with way more attacking talent than they have on yeah. paper i think that north macedonia would be the team that played it with a higher tempo even though they barely touched the ball right and so again the shot thing kind of is 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 interesting because if you if you were to tabulate like teams and and matches based on this there's some interesting potential i don't know when you look at the tables it's like okay there's some things that look plausible but i think even knudsen brings up that typically as a as a person that wants to go to a game and and observe or maybe watch on tv high shot counts are exciting they're you know if there's a lot of shots it means there's a lot of chances for goals and all we want to see in the games at the end of the day are probably goals and so there's there's a a bit of a you know a fan flavor to what this means and you could maybe consider this as like you know higher tempo is more exciting to watch but simultaneously it's it's maybe more about yeah directness and it lacks the mechanisms that really suggest that a shot means that a team is really traversing the field every time to get there as opposed to simply maintaining their ground and exerting their will in what can still be a very slow and painful process so Mm -hmm. 
let's talk about the third example that we have here. Um, Kevin Minkus, he wrote something for American Soccer Analysis, another very prominent blog. Um, and he is now the director of football analytics at the Chicago Fire. So he talked about number of passes per game. So this is pretty interesting because we had discussed potentially including passes into our, the conversation. Um, his expression is basically the idea that if you have a team that plays a ton of passes, that they're probably playing at a higher tempo. Yeah. And it's a neat idea. He expresses that obviously this can be offset by the amount of time that the ball is actually in play. So there's been a lot of research done recently about how there's some games that just like have no time in which the ball is actually in play. There's all this diving and referee manipulation and lots of throw-ins and stuff like that. Um, and so naturally, if you play more, you have more chances to make more passes and you have to normalize based on that. Um, there's also the importance of expressing, you know, like we said earlier, the types of passes, not just the distance, but the field location, right? The classic example we keep bringing up is these center backs exchanging the ball back and forth. Like, is that high tempo? Probably not. That's probably just, we just probably don't care about that. And so yeah. it's trying to find a way in which, you know, we can really pinpoint this. And fundamentally, the, the point of this brief lit review is that here's a bunch of smart people that are even expressing like the clear drawbacks of each of these respective methods. And it's, it's very difficult to capture. Um, so yeah, I don't know any gut reactions on Mintus's yeah. concept. I, I like it. it's, you know, the closest to probably the, what my view of a uh, tempo would be. I think this is something that would, you know, heavily favor a team like Manchester city or maybe even Liverpool more so than kind of more direction based metric does. But you know, missing missing the direction is important, and you're right that this doesn't uh, really account for what area of the field you're trying to play into. That you know could favor center backs just knocking a few passes back and forth. You know, Italy, I know, or a team that racked up ridiculous passing statistics all through the Euros, but perhaps didn't play at the highest tempo at times. It um, even, I mean, I suppose it even begs the question. Think of Spain in 2010. Yeah, a team that just held the ball, had ridiculous passing numbers. Maybe there's an aspect of this that we're not considering where, you know, maybe it's the collective. If you were to take the positions of each player on the field, each field player, so not including goalies. Mm -hmm. And if you were to find like their the center of mass of the entire team and you were to express the velocity of the center of mass of the team, maybe that's something that, say, a team like Spain that would score very highly with this given metric, but maybe spends no. the entire game just... Yes, it's one touch, one touch, knocking the ball around. But maybe, you know, the final was 1-0 in extra time. It was 0-0, zero, zero, yeah. right, in the World Cup against the Netherlands. Yeah. Was that particularly high tempo? I don't know. There were a lot of, like, you know, people with flying cleats into the chest that were exciting. It was, you know, maybe the Netherlands had some moments that were quite direct. But I don't know whether you would really intuitively consider Spain to have had that high of a tempo because they just dominated. They held the ball. There was little resistance between passes between players, but was it? Were you at the edge of your seat? Is high tempo directly linked to how close to the edge of the seat you get? It's difficult. So it's very a uh, very stable play is maybe how you could decide that center of mass is not moving very much. In, exactly. In so anyway. I think that's that's a really interesting concept. The center of mass. Um, I like that a lot actually. Uh, but I think you know it. It's gonna need. You know, I think there's no way to make like a a truly all-encompassing metric for tempo, you know, with like one or two variables. This this is taking a lot of stuff into account. I think the models we've talked about so far, like they all have value and get some things right. But I think 
like you know all of this stuff needs to be considered if, if we're trying to do it and that makes it very complicated to make an actual formula for what tempo would really look like yeah um, agreed so with that let's do a halftime break we'll check in on your computer's battery um oh yeah we'll get hydrated uh have a quick team talk and then we'll be back Without Will interrupting with some catchphrase that he proclaims is our podcast catchphrase, uh, mind you, I've never heard of Skibop before. I, uh, we're going to waste no time in getting right back into the episode. So I think uh, as we kind of proclaimed at the beginning, our plan is in this second half to be just a lot more deranged generally and just ask a bunch of questions that have minimal organization, but just yeah. are food for thought, I think, for us and for whoever is listening. So Jonathan, I think, that, I think uh, uh, buckle everyone... in. Everyone out there is thinking, you know, that first half was way too structured. <laughs> Loosen up a bit, guys. <laughs> Loosen up, we will. So, okay. We're just going to, like I said, we're just going to pepper each other with things and just talk. And it's going to be ranging. So don't expect too much uh, continuity. Okay. One thing that I wanted to bring up was the idea of scouting new players. So some of the things that we had read in terms of our lit review, some things that we discussed within ourselves regarded the, you know, the league tempo. If it, if there's leagues that play at a faster pace, and I think without even necessarily considering leagues, we can think of this at say the youth level with regards to a player who gets played up from the U 15s, the U 17s, and those that are coaching him or her may ask the question of, Oh, are they going to be able to compete at that higher pace of game or at that higher tempo? And so this idea of transplanting a player from one environment to the next, I think it is one question that is often asked, or perhaps not actually asked enough, is whether or not the, yeah, that environment is, allows for transferable skills, right? So in the typical maybe job market, if you're looking to get a job in one area and you go into an interview, it's probably good to show that you have done some stuff in the past at the same level or even higher than what you will be expected to do in a new, in the new environment. I think the same goes for players. And so I think yeah. when you're scouting, I guess one question that I would pose as food for thought yeah. is, you know, is this a really desired transferable skill is like that the league tempo or the team tempo or the age tempo matches in order to ensure that the player is going to be able to have say like the runway the platform upon which to perform at their same level that they had in context one in context two because one of the challenges right is sometimes things get lost in translation along the way i i think it absolutely does matter and uh you know going going back to our music analogy you know when, when we're thinking about tempo on the team thing one person playing out of tempo is going to mess the whole thing up massively, hmm. right? You know, and this is the same thing for soccer, you know, and the way you friend is as a player, you know, who's used to playing at a slower tempo going into a team that plays at a faster tempo. I think that's, you know, probably the more common example, I guess, with players moving up into teams that demand more from you technically. And, you know, it's, it's a big problem. You know, if you've never played at that speed, I mean, you see, new signings will sometimes you know look like they're a bit slow on the ball they're not exactly sure where their teammates are going to be making the runs and they they seem like they're just behind the pace of the game it's something you'll hear you know commentators say about new signings in the premier league every every year they come in he's like oh he hasn't adapted to the pace of the league yet or he hasn't adapted to the pace of the team 
So I think it's very important to be able to, you know, play at the tempo of the rest of the team. And I think, you know, this is something you could perhaps learn, you know, obviously these players can still improve, even though they are kind of, uh, you know, set in what kind of player they are at some level when they're old enough to start like getting signed by big clubs. But, you know, you can work on that and you can get used to both mentally or mentally and technically to playing at a higher speed. Um, but kind of looking at the flip side of this, like, I want to ask if you think, you know, going the other way, let's say you're used to playing in a team that's playing at a very high tempo, you're used to moving the ball on a quickly one, two touch, and then you get transferred to a team that plays in a much more deliberate way. Do you think that's a problem or would that be easier to adapt to than going the other way around? I, I think it probably comes down to like how personally attached you feel with this like virtue of high tempo ability and whether you feel insulted by a group that's unable to keep up with you so i i think of this in, as an example like iniesta when he went to Vissel kobe i don't know necessarily how Vissel kobe plays i just know that they're not probably paying the ball around like iniesta was probably used to at barcelona probably and not quite. Was, yeah was this something that he you know, what was his experience like? I don't know. I, I could imagine that perhaps he would quickly, especially initially, find some frustration. Perhaps he was simply enjoying playing in a different environment and playing at a more relaxed pace. Perhaps his ability to compete in the previous environment deteriorated over time with his age and also perhaps with the, you know, the training sessions that were at a lower tempo than what he was perhaps used to. Um I think it's a great question, though. You see players like, I don't know, uh, Aaron Ramsey just went from Arsenal to Juve to Rangers. I wonder yeah. how the tempo has changed for him over the course of his career and what his thought has been. Obviously, he barely even played at Juve, but maybe it'd be interesting to see kind of like when you when you go from one environment to the next, um, if you are playing at a fa if you're going from a faster tempo environment to a slower tempo environment, um, do you feel held up? Do you feel just really confident and like really, really, really comfortable in your ability to keep things moving? It's a good question. I think it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll and, keep, or yeah. go ahead. Yeah. And again, that's, that's another way, um, you know, and yes, to going to Vissel Kobe where you're kind of framing it. And, and this is the next question is, you know, pretty much good teams play high tempo bad teams play low tempo you know if you move up you get a good transfer you're going to play in a higher tempo team and like do you do you think this is true generally that you know better teams with better players are just naturally going to play at a higher speed because they're able to technically so i think when you look at it in terms of say like age age level or, or like divisions um this makes sense because it's simply players that have the technical and cognitive ability to execute things faster at the same if not even higher uh, technical proficiency. I think that when you talk about teams specifically at the highest elite level, that is perhaps where it deteriorates or yeah. where you can see some of these edge cases in which teams are really successful playing low tempo, low tempo football. And again, we talked about how it's hard to define what that means in each of yeah. these different metrics that we've d kind of loosely discussed. You might order the team say in La Liga very differently. Um, yeah. But fundamentally, I think that question is easier answered through the lens of, yeah, if you go from the Spanish third division to the Spanish first division, like a lot of these players have, say, coming from our B team, 
and you ask, okay, like in preseason, people were questioning, is a guy like Gavi going to be able to play at the speed of play that's necessary within the first team? Turns out he sure was. Yeah. There's other players who have come up and maybe suffered a little bit more and then gone back down and are playing more regularly with the B team. Uh, that is one of the questions. And so I think that when you talk about kind of this like vertical comparison, it's easier. I think laterally it, it becomes muddier and it's the question, it, like it poses the questions that we were asking in the first half. Yeah, I like that cool. a lot. And um, I think you're right, you know, at, this this does come down, you know, higher tempo, like you need some certain baseline of skill to be able to play at that. And because of that, you know, at a lower level, you're not going to get as high a tempo just because it's not feasible for these players. Um, but kind of moving on here, uh, their teams don't do this. Teams don't just like sign great players and they go, hey, well, these guys can play fast. We're going to play as fast as we possibly can. You know, I think uh, this is keeping with the music thing. Jacob Collier, who's a musician, he has a quote, which is uh, something like, less can be more, but only if you know what more is. And I really like that applying to this. You know, playing slow can be better, but maybe only if you actually have the ability to play fast as well. Hmm. Which I think that's nice. Teams all do. I think that's really nice. That's a good yeah. quote. Thank um, you. Well, thank Jacob. Actually, but... I guess. Yeah, I guess now yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that. That's a good. That's a good thing to kind of put out there. W would you say then that there are that teams that are at the highest level, right? So a team, let's say like Burnley, that we might criticize for being kind of generally maybe somewhat boring in possession or more of a bunker down team over the last five years. Um, nothing that really is super, super exciting or exhilarating yeah. from a possession standpoint. Like the, the question is, yeah, it's probably important to remove ourselves from the EPL environment and to say a lot of those players, if you put them in like any pickup game in, you know, on the, in the countryside would be playing so impossibly quickly that we are Absolutely. just completely spoiled watching them compared to a team like Liverpool and so it's all about the vantage point and the juxtaposition. I think that's yeah. interesting yeah, because like it's it's all relative like that, of course. But you know, in going back in the context of the Premier League, I would describe Burnley as a team who do not know what more is, who are unable to play in the, you know, high tempo, you know, moving the ball around quickly play. Well, so that's I guess that's my counterpoint though, is that yeah. like I think that a lot of those players really probably do, but they would they would they would stand out in an environment like the championship. Maybe yeah. not so much in the EPL. It's like when you say knowing what more is, is it knowing and being able to technically, individually, just generally compared to the population of the world? Or is it like this is a team that has no, never it's, it's in, in the PL in the tried to do in. this? Yeah, it's right. in the context you're in. It's in the Premier League, I think. You know, it, of course, all these guys could do ridiculous things and, you know, playing in a park, you know, Dan Byrne it's, scoring bicycle kicks all day long or something. It's easy to forget, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you scored a bicycle kick once in a park. Maybe. I think I hit the bar. But I'm close enough. That's right. Close enough. So we'll keep on moving. Um, one thing that you brought up some interesting points about in our previous conversations was this idea of attack and defense. We were mentioning this with North Macedonia and Italy. Tell me a little bit about um, how is tempo set? Who sets tempo? Who maybe uh, follows it or responds to it? How would you frame that? Yeah, well, this is, you know, kind of tying back into this idea that, like, faster tempo is better. Like, that's that's true, you know. It, for a defensive team, it's generally harder to play against a team that's moving the ball quickly. But 
another thing to think about is, you know, the defense's expectations. And the defense kind of just has to anticipate what the attacking team is going to play and what tempo they're going to play. Because the attack gets to determine this. You know, when you're on the ball, you you kind of have complete control over the speed of the game. And obviously teams can try and press you to try and rush the speed somewhat. But if you're proficient in possession, you can move the ball around to avoid this. And you, you know, have the impetus as the attacking team to decide where you're going to play, decide how many passes you're going to try to do it in. And, you know, so this means that, you know, teams maybe have less freedom over what their defensive tempo is than their attacking tempo is. But I still think they can influence. And, you know, this whole idea of pressing is kind of aimed towards doing that. I think it's an excellent point. There's a lot of discussion as to trying to figure out ways in which defense can be more protagonistic and ways that you can actually dictate the game when you don't have the ball. I think this is inherently an area of exploration because it's hard and unorthodox. I think that the common wisdom is the fact that when you have the ball, you get to indicate the speed of play for the most part because you are single-handedly the one that controls that. I think pressing is a really interesting idea because there are teams that might be, again, like we've discussed, maybe really low tempo on the, the attacking side, but very high tempo defensively. They're always trying to win the ball back very, very quickly. And they're making, you know, and that, that also brings in the question of if we're trying to quantify this and we're using on-ball metrics and we're considering distance that the ball travels and so forth, what happens when you don't have the ball? Are you suddenly yeah. now looking at velocity and acceleration vectors of the individual players and saying, well, this team is like really frenetically moving around? Well, what if they're frenetically moving around without much purpose? How do you define it, right? Is it, is it, you have to include some sort of proximity to the ball. Do you have to include like the center of mass, as we mentioned yeah. beforehand, how quickly your entire group it, or maybe like resistance to destabilization. Like there's all these different potential yeah, ways that we can capture this. It's brutal. I mean, we saw how hard it would have been to calculate kind of offensive tempo. And without that like foundational point of the ball to kind of reference, that becomes much, much more difficult to quantify anything when you're you know tracking just 11 guys running around the field and what that is actually doing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. There's, I think there's a huge difference between, you know, what a team's attacking and defensive tempo could be. You know, the, the situation you brought up is kind of what I would think of as like a Pep Guardiola side that's trying to win the ball back very quickly, but then is going to keep it for a long time when they do. I think like a flip side is maybe think like a classic Mourinho team. They'll play at an incredibly low defensive tempo, low block. They'll say, okay, you're not scoring. We will eventually get the ball back, and when we do, off hmm. to the races, which I think is kind of the opposite. But you know, it was also a very, very effective strategy at a certain time. And I think that's cool yeah. that two such, you know, uh, polar opposite approaches can both have had such great results. Um, I think that's a fascinating example too. Mourinho's 2010 Inter Milan, the famous games in the Champions League against Barcelona, were defined by, like hacking at Messi's legs and trying to make a very, very strong foundation and then just pumping it long to guys like Milito. Mm -hmm. They just kick the ball into the corner and hope that he would be able to, you know, dribble around a guy like Puyol. And as it turned out over the course of two legs, they did. And I think that's a quintessential example of the way in which we might need to have like, you know, tempo and then, you know, tempo sub defense and sub offense and and kind of separate yeah. those two things and another horizontal thing... and vertical exactly i think we need like probably 10 metrics minimum to start getting at uh <laughs> what tempo actually is so here's a question um is tempo a a 
a thing that just exists and it's a number and we hold on to it? Or can you alter tempo as you go? Can you change your tempo in a game? I think absolutely. I think all the top teams probably would change tempo. I mean, it's, I mean, first of all, it's a situational thing, right? You're not going to play with the same intensity if you're one nil down in the closing minutes as if you're three nil up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But I mean, even on top of that, like I said, you know, it's, it's about a large part of, or a large advantage of like having control over the tempo is you get to kind of try and play off the defensive expectations of what you're going to do, and you can try and surprise them. So, you know, a team that's been playing very, very, you know, slow, methodical play for the whole game, suddenly going direct could be much more effective than a team that's been trying to go direct from the start, you know, because in that moment, the defense is expecting something else, and that change of tempo is brutal to do it. And I would say the same thing about dribbling. You know, like the there would be a thought that like someone who can dribble at great speed is just like the best dribbler. And, you know, OK, well, just go fast all the time. Go Mbappe. But, you know, the really great dribblers, they don't win. You know, they don't just like blow past people off pure speed. They use change of pace. You know, you watch a guy like Neymar, like Mane and his prime go past people on the wing. They're often like completely stopping the ball, you know, so they can have a more dynamic change of tempo from that. And I think, you know, at a larger level, if teams can do this during a game and just suddenly, you know, switch, okay, we've played 15 minutes this way, we're going to shock these guys by just switching up our speed of play real quick here. Or, you know, even bringing on a sub could alter the tempo massively. You know, bring on like a Divock Origi type for Liverpool, it's clear the tempo always changes when he comes on. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I think you're totally right. I think perhaps it's even worth proposing that the real determinant of maybe this exciting factor that we're trying to dissect is actually, yeah, like the derivative of tempo. It's DT, DT is what yeah. we really care about is like this idea of our, is, it's, it's more about accelerations. It's about catching the opponent off guard. It's about destabilizing the other team. And yeah. the, I'm sure there are, you know, sports uh, kinesiologists that would say that those changes of pace are the things that have the most wear and tear on the human body, the things Absolutely. that are most uncomfortable for the opponent to deal with. Yeah. And, and mentally and, as well, just having to switch modes and, and change what you're doing is much, and, much harder than having to deal with the same challenge all game. In terms of fatigue too, the, mm. those changes allow you to rest. They allow you to burst. They allow you to rest. Mm. They allow you, but it's also might be more difficult, you know, in terms of your physiological degradation over the course of the match. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Mm. I think that this idea of acceleration is important. And we'll talk about yeah. that again, kind of at and, the very tail end. Yeah, and like bringing this back to this idea of um, you know teams teams being uh, better if they can play at a higher tempo. Maybe it's not better. Maybe it's just they have more range. You assume every team has the same baseline for the lowest possible tempo they can play at, huh. which is just standing there, right? Or I guess. Um, but sure. you know the the really talented teams have a much higher top level of the fastest tempo that they're able to play at, and maybe it doesn't matter so much like where your base game plan is along that spectrum. You know whether you're a Mourinho who wants to play slower, whether you're Guardiola who wants to play a bit faster. But you know if you're a good team, you have that range, and it's that ability to switch into a vastly different tempo that's more important than the actual tempo at which you start. So that's compelling too because we have this c- idea of tournaments right and league play that we might ask the question of a team might need to 
produce something that's more prolonged and sustainable over the course of say 38 matches in a season. But when it comes to these knockout mm-hmm. fixtures, maybe now you need the question is more about the ceiling. It's more about how fast are you able to go when the question is is asked and you look at a team say like Ajax that was Mm -hmm. supposed to be a very very exciting fun team to watch they were obviously taking care of business in the Eredivisie now suddenly they get knocked out by Benfica who has one shot on target in the entire Mm -hmm. in the entire game off of one header and Ajax played with great dynamism in that game realistically they had some good chances it wasn't the worst showing wasn't their best showing by by a significant margin but it go it go it begs the question like they're able to do something maybe they were almost doing the reverse like maybe they could have cooled it a little bit in the league and played more of a relaxed game and still exerted their dominance and saved some of that true uh you know sharpness and 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 incisiveness for when they're playing the top teams in europe and admittedly yeah. even if people were discounting benfica benfica is one of them right so i think that's a cool corner of this to dive into as well um, yeah. one thing that I wanted to ask you about since you're, uh, you know, an NBA expert, um, mm-hmm. at least between the two of us, how yeah, does, how does this all, all relative, of course, yeah. how does this all compare with different invasion games like basketball? Because we talked a little bit about the shot clock as a reinforcing mechanism that would make it maybe like tempo in basketball is defined very differently than it would be in soccer, just because of the way that possession works and the way in which possession is forced to change hands. Just how do you think of all of this? Yeah, so so tempo in basketball is defined. So it, it, it's different than soccer, like you mentioned. If anyone really doesn't know basketball at all, I'll give a quick little rundown here. <laughs> when you get the ball, you have 24 seconds. At the end of that 24 seconds, the ball is going to the other team, no matter what happens. Um, unless you, well, not no matter what happens. But pretty much most of the time, after 24 seconds, the ball is just going to the other team. And what you can do is hopefully get a shot up in those 24 seconds, but you have a lot of control over when you take that shot in those 24 seconds. Some teams will try to take the shot very quickly and you know get back on defense. Some teams will try and use the entire shot clock. And again, this is something that could be situational based in the game. But uh, the, the thing I find really interesting about basketball compared to soccer is the shot clock, like you said, and kind of just the way possession changes. Because in soccer, changes of possession can be very, very fluid. You know, there are teams that can play a high press trying to get the ball turned over a lot. And like I said, there's teams that play a low block and might just say, okay, we're just not going to have possession for the next 10 minutes. And that's just fine. And in basketball, which is like sort of more uh, regulated, I suppose, and that, you know, it's okay, this team's going to have possession and this team is going to have possession. Then, you know, there's less opportunities to surprise people with tempo, I think, based off uh, just like in the normal game. And I agree. I think like even if I even if I think about this in terms of tra- of like transition and like turning the ball over back and forth, I look yeah. at soccer and I see a lot of moments in which, let's say, like Team X has the ball. They're playing with it. Team Y wins it. Team X wins it back within seconds. It's like very rapid. You could have five changes of possession in the span of 30 seconds. In basketball, it's like very few teams are doing full court presses. Very seldom do you have like three turnovers that occur one after another before a basket is scored. That just doesn't happen. Typically, a team like waltzes up the court. They have the freedom to do it with their point guard. They have they basically build up doesn't even exist. You just get to the attacking half of the court. 
and then you start building there, right? And so it, it's very, very different in that sense, in terms of the, just the way that things are organized, the way that possession is kind of like fixed and yeah. and and controlled. And another big element of this is, you know, you think about basketball, it's a much smaller court with much fewer players than soccer. Getting back into your defensive shape takes like two seconds in basketball compared to, you know, I would imagine much longer for a soccer team running all the way back to their own half. So what this means is, I mean, there's, there is a tiny window in between when one team loses possession and when they are able to fully get back on defense. And, you know, if the team makes a shot or even if they take a shot from a decent, decent distance, by the time it gets to the rim and is rebounded and the other team gets control, most of the time will, the team will already be back. So like in a way, if you allow the other team to take a shot, you have lost your chance at a counterattack no matter what happens. So this There's means also, yeah. to, to play at a faster pace, to kind of get that attacking control back over the game, um, I think it, it actually becomes like more reliant on what your defensive tempo is than perhaps soccer is because you know the amount of counterattacking possessions you're going to get is so hard tied to how aggressive you are on defense. I think in soccer... Um, there's there's much less difference between say winning the ball back off a you know a shot that is saved by the keeper versus just like winning it back with a tackle. Those could lead to very similar situations. Like in basketball, you know, getting a steal and like getting an offensive or a defensive rebound on a three are massively massively different things. So the teams that play the fastest tempo offensively almost always play an incredibly aggressive defensive game. You know, the Memphis Grizzlies are probably the, uh, uh, you know, poster team for this this year. They, they dominate the league in transition points, and this is also because they absolutely dominate the league on, like, blocks and steals defensively. They're very aggressive. Hmm. They try to win the ball back quickly before the attack is expecting to lose it, and that way they are able to catch them out rather than letting them shoot. And, One uh, of the things that's especially interesting too is like basketball has no uh offsides system in place nope. right so you can have a guy that hangs high up the court that as soon as you win the ball realistically you're outnumbered four v five right um but if you're able to win the ball you can just fire it up to them right i see one thing where occasionally if you have a situation and this just doesn't exist in soccer a player takes so long to get back say a, like there's just a guy who like they just don't get back in time. The play surpasses them. The ball is stolen. They're actually now in a phenomenal position to receive yeah. the ball very quickly and score. And that's something I that I've seen a lot. If like there were there, especially like, I don't know, there was a period of time where there were all these high school clips in the U S shown of point, young point guards that would just like, as soon as the other team wins the ball or, or scores even right. And you inbound the play, they tuck it down the field and they suddenly like are able to score. And that yeah. seems pretty high tempo to me. Yeah. If you had to pick one player that defines uh, high tempo or maybe being somebody that's able to manipulate tempo really well, who would you pick? Um, so for me, I'm a, I'm a Chicago's Bulls fan and a guy who was incredible, you know, at kind of raising the tempo of the game early in the season, who the Bulls have definitely been missing because he's been injured for months now, is Lonzo Ball. And Lonzo Ball, for anyone who doesn't know, he uh, you might know him from the whole big baller brand thing that he was a part of back in the day. But he's developed into actually a, a very good, very smart basketball player. And, you know, this guy is huge. He plays point guard at 6'6", which is pretty good. He's got a big frame. He can switch on to pretty much any attacking player, regardless of position on the other team. 
and he uses this ability to just be like hyper aggressive on defense. He is always looking for steals. You know, he'll he'll uh, he'll come over to double team people when like from the blind side when they're not expecting it. He'll yank the ball out, and then he his range of passing down the court. You know, he's someone who's very direct, but he gets it. And you know, those guys you mentioned that forgot to get back on defense and are hanging out the other end of the field, or even you know, if they didn't forget, you know, they know to run for him now. And you know, mm-hmm. Bulls were able to really catch a ton of teams out by doing this. And when he's gone, they they now play one of the slower paces in the league since that, and they haven't been able to, you know, find those points. And that's why they've gotten so much worse. But yeah, that you know, having that one player who, you know, is able to like pretty much change the tempo of the game by himself is crazy. So taking that then and bringing it back to soccer, I guess my question is, let's think about this from a more individual standpoint. Let's talk about players that act as conductors for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you, is it better to have just one designated person that does this or should everybody be good at changing the pace? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think you could say it's better to have one individual person. Um, let me see. I think you'd rather have most. I mean, the, the biggest thing with that is then, you know, if they get injured or something, then if your entire team sure, sure, sure. is centered around let's, one player, is that? Okay. Let's say I'll reframe it. Like, is it better to have 10 players in the field whose role is to set the baseline and one whose it is to break that? Or is it better for everybody to simultaneously be capable, I suppose, of of doing that? Because in some teams, right, we look at certain sides and we say like, hey, a lot of these guys are unremarkable, but there's this one dude that really, really knows. Like you said, like Lonzo Ball, who is the, yeah. the one that dictates. He's the one that changes it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think ideally you would want all the players to be able to change tempo, but that's that's not attainable because, you know, these guys can't psychically communicate, right? At the end of the day, you know, in, in order to get everyone on the team uh, to move along, it is probably better to have one guy who's setting the tempo rather than everyone else just doing what they think. You know, and this this guy has got to be very smart. You've got to really trust him. Uh, hmm. And, you know, but this is, a, this is something I get. I, I don't know exactly like what coaches you know do in terms of that in terms of like having one player switch the tempo but i know on the defensive side coaches will have you know certain players like uh picked out as like pressing triggers like you know this guy starts pressing that is the cue for the entire team to go press if he doesn't press don't waste your energy guys you know i think uh like when Klopp got here like adam lalana was this player for us for some time and you know he was uh kind of seen as that and that's that was an interesting way to do it all right, cool. So I guess what I'd like to do then with that individual focus is to maybe guide the end of our episode into a bit of a analogy that I've been thinking about in the last couple of days in order to describe this whole idea of tempo, uh, maybe more holistically. So the way that I kind of want to frame this is like whenever the ball starts out in a given possession, um, it starts with a certain amount of energy, let's say, okay? And as the ball goes across the passing chain from one point to another and it goes from player to player and there's dribbles and what have you, I think that each individual cog in that machine has the ability to either uh, keep the ball moving to kind of give it some springiness uh, or they can dissipate some of that energy. And so, you know, the way that I think about this is perhaps somewhat in the same sense as like a spring mass damper system in classical mechanical engineering in which you have like some input 
force function that starts things off. It gets things moving. And you have a springing component that is proportional to the distance that the spring is compressed. And this, let's say, helps the system keep vibrating back and forth. And you have a dash pot, which let's say is like, imagine you have some sort of body that's sloshing in and out of molasses. And so the faster it sloshes, the more resistance it experiences and the more mitigated vibrations you experience. Okay, so all of this kind of like aside, I think that we can look at the these possessions and these sequences of passes as kind of this black box inside which each of these players can serve as, say, a spring component or they can serve as a damping component. And so some players, let's say, where you, you can find them in the passing chain and they're constantly slowing play down. They take too many touches. They don't have the ability, the technical quality, the cognitive awareness to keep things moving quickly. And at the same time, you have others that you can kind of consistently rely on their positive contribution to the fluidity of the game. And so whether you think that's an appropriate comparison or analog or not, or if that's just far too abstract to even correlate, I guess my question is, you know, you have these these characters in in this play that are lubricating the system or they're, they're, they're complicating it and they're slowing it down. So do you have any, off the top of your head, examples of players that act in this way. I, you know, I, in our outline, I've kind of labeled these as accelerators and decelerators. I don't know necessarily if that's the exactly correct term, but the type of person that you can count on to change the tempo, the type of people that are in the same way as Lonzo Ball, as you mentioned in basketball, kind of expected to be the one that causes those moments of instability. Are there some that are consistently increasing the tempo? Are there some that are consistently decreasing it? How do you see that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, your your whole analogy is interesting, maybe a little bit over my head with the, the bodies mired in molasses or whatever you had said. But um, I think it's it's good. It's complicated. You know, this uh, this idea of energy, you know, calculating that would require a lot of, you know, very specific math. And I think that kind of fits in with what we had said in the first half about tempo being kind of a difficult thing to quantify with just a couple of variables. Um, but getting back to your question about the players, I think uh, Paul Pogba is maybe someone who's always stood out to me as someone who's uh, maybe an accelerator, is going to try and get the ball moving very quickly, is going to try a lot of through balls over the top to Mbappe when he's playing for France, something like that. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think Pogba is certainly the type of player that I think he, he gets, to me, when I watch him play, he gets bored when things are too... Uh, too straightforward. I think he's always, he's trying, you know, there's there's a bit of discourse around the idea of like, you know, hey, quit trying to play the final ball every single time. Stop trying to make everything so delicate and, and sumptuous. I think that's actually probably one of his better qualities is this idea that he has this ability to see things that others don't and that certainly has the superfluous technical quality to achieve it. Um, I think that when you see, say, a lot of small passes being made in a tight area, you can rely on Pogba for the most part to be the one that takes a touch outside of that boundary and looks for a line-breaking pass or looks to switch the field very, very quickly. I think another player that I've watched and unfortunately has just got injured and I'm devastated that he's going to be out for a significant amount of time is Florian Wirtz. Um, for Leverkusen, he, every single time I watch them play, it's almost as if Leverkusen just 
holds the ball. They knock it around to each other. And as soon as Vertz gets the ball, he's just so direct. He gets the ball and he penetrates. He finds a, he, you know, breaks lines. He's very goal oriented. So he's driving straight at the goal mouth. And I think it's a very valuable quality. He rarely is one to slow things down. He's the one where as soon as he gets the ball, suddenly everybody's converging around him. He's only 18 years old, as far as I last checked, um, making him, I think, one of the most interesting talents and prospects coming up right now. I doubt many people would doubt would disagree with that. But he has this quality about him that not everyone does, which is this ability to just command these changes of tempo. And it's so destabilizing for the opponent that he has he was scoring tons of goals, he was assisting a lot. And he's this catalyst for Leverkusen's attack. Do, do you have any players that maybe would be considered decelerators? Guys that whenever they receive the ball, they're more about, you know, putting their hands out and saying, hey, chill out. Let's relax. Let's keep the ball. Anybody of that ilk that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, just like generally speaking, I think a lot of center backs would kind of fall into that category that uh, are more possession oriented. But, you know, talking about a midfielder, uh, Thiago at Liverpool, I think, is someone who kind of plays that role. But it's it's hard to like completely call him a decelerator, though, because like he, he is a guy who generally plays the game at his own tempo and is going to, you know, once in a while take a t- few touches in midfield, slow things down. Um, but he's also someone who has, you know, an eye for like those really quick through balls in behinds. And, sure. and um, you know, that, that kind of goes the other way with Pogba as well. You know, going back to that, that example, like he is someone who's generally trying to speed things up, but he's also someone who once in a while will stop the ball, you know, in midfield and wait for these things. And uh, I think kind of that ability to just change the tempo, whether it's to one side or the other, is maybe something that's like measurable um, as just like its own quantity. And I don't know. That kind of ties into like uh, this idea of a player like being a star to me. I think these are mm. players that maybe would stand out when you're watching these guys that, you know, the rest of the game is going at its own pace and then the ball gets them and suddenly just this one guy has control. I think there's that's the reason why a lot of players will be defined as metronomes in these kind of roles too. I think the six is often a player that receives the ball has to a lot of passes that are high percentage, but also has perhaps the capability to ping one like Cruz or Chabi Alonso. I think, yeah, metronomic kind of falls back into our musical analogy. These are the players that are setting what that BPM should be for the match. And it can be hard to do that because it's easy when everybody around you's heart is racing to allow your heart to race as well. But a player that, you know, has the confidence and the ability to breathe at their own rate, I think is very valuable. And I think that a lot of these players, whether they are, you know, the way that I kind of divide these two things, you kind of alluded to it too, is some these accelerators are about kind of provoking disorder. And the decelerators are about establishing control. And I think both are very important in a match. There are games in which the pace is simply too quick. Everything is, you know, Players are playing passes that they shouldn't because they're rushed and it's all about haste and and the quality simply isn't there and you need somebody to pump the brakes. There's other games where it's too stagnant and you need somebody to to break things up a little bit. And so it's interesting to view tempo as this concept that can define what that looks like. And these players, I think, become very valuable. And this seems almost like a bit of an intangible because, like we said, it's hard to measure 
tempo, let alone the tempo for an individual person, that uh, Lottie Branson or Lotta Branson uh, that I mentioned earlier, she, in her article that she published a little while ago, talked about Donnie Vandebeek as a player that very, very consistently in the men's game um, was taking very few touches in order to, between receiving the ball and playing it off of him. And mm -hmm. she had cited him as this player that was simply this kind of accelerator role that like the ball goes through them and things keep moving. There's little resistance to motion. There's little dissipation of energy. And so he becomes a very lubricated joint in the system. And I think that that's cool that you could look at players and maybe try to quantify like who is the best, you know, who is the best lubricated joint in a possession side and who perhaps is the squeakiest one that might need a little bit more training in terms of keeping things going. So anyway, um, with all of that, I, I think we can draw this episode to a close. I'm delighted to have shared the mic with you again, Will. Do you have any parting thoughts, emotions, wishes? Um, I think you've summed it up really well. So I think that's right. We don't really know what tempo is still. We have no way to calculate it. And we know that uh, both fast and slow tempos can work sometimes. So... We've there provided you go. absolutely zero value to the listener. Classic exactly. touchline theory conclusion. There you go. Well, and I think the important thing to consider is that, like mentioned or alluded to in the beginning, at the end of the day, all of this is simply for you, whoever is listening, to think of your own opinion. I think, you know, Will, you and I have had conversations about maybe more formalized education and our gripes with the fact that uh, maybe it isn't what we might want it to be. And I think that there's a lot of people that are discussing sport in a way that's very definitive. I think that this game is something for each and every one of us to interpret on our own. And so hopefully one or two things that you or I said resonated with whomever is listening and you guys can formulate your own opinions. And if you have something that you think is worth sharing, then you should let us know. And I'm sure that that would give us some perspective too. So yeah, we're we're still waiting to do our first episode based off like a fan question or something. <laughs> we, we are still thinking of all of them ourselves. Yeah, we gotta lubricate that system. That's right. Um, but yeah, this was this was lovely, my friend. It's been forever. I hope that those of you who are listening haven't been too disgruntled with our significant leave of absence. But I think we can lightly promise you some more fun, interesting episodes to come. We have some things on the docket that we've been loosely discussing that I find to be quite fascinating. Maybe a guest or two that will be coming on soon, too. So uh, plenty more to come. So if you enjoyed this episode or if you've enjoyed any of ours in the past, uh, feel free to share this show with a friend uh, to let a loved one know that we perhaps have some interesting things to say or that you've gotten some food for thought out of this podcast. Obviously for us, this there's no money that we get out of this. There's no advertising or anything. It's simply just us doing this for fun. But, uh, you know, that's, the more reach that that's not quite show, We did have advertising. Um, oh, that's right. I'm sorry. We have to rekindle uh, our relationship with our sponsor from the past. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a while, um, but I'll, I'll send some emails you know, talking. But yeah, you know, we're on Twitter. Uh, I'm I'm not really on Twitter, but Martinez, you can talk to him there. Uh, <laughs> send me a letter. You know, my my home address is out there if you're trying to find it. 
shout out Jonathan again. We really appreciated your sentiments. It's a, like I said, a large part of what brought the show back. So this one's for you, bud. I hope, uh, I hope Dave, Dave, uh, gets out of there soon. Dave, if you're listening, do the right thing. Well, with that, till next time, William. Till next time.